Hello, this is Mike Burek, your host and producer of Krenitsia, The Well, a podcast series about topics of interest to the global Ukrainian community. This episode is produced for The Ukrainian Weekly, a newspaper published in English for Ukrainians since 1933. Our guest for this episode is Peter Dickinson, who is editor of the Atlantic Council's Ukraine Alert and also chief editor for Business Ukraine magazine. Welcome, Peter. How are you? Hi, I'm I'm well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today on Krenitsia. To start well, off with, I would like to get a little bit of information about your educational and professional background. Well, I'm I'm British, um, so I grew up in I grew up in in Britain, and and I, I I came to Ukraine initially in the late 1990s after having graduated from university. I, I was a history graduate, um, and I was I managed to I applied for and was selected for a, a British Foreign Office project, uh, which happened to be in Ukraine. So I didn't I didn't grow up with a with a Ukrainian background or any Ukrainian family ties. Or even honest, you know, in all honesty, even with it, with a particular interest in this part of the world, um, it was really just a graduate program that attract that attracted my attention. Uh, that happened to be in Ukraine, so I came here in the late 1990s for what was supposed to be a one-year posting, uh, and I've never left. Um, I, I ended up after working with the British Embassy for a year, uh, and then when the opportunity to then move on somewhere else with the British Foreign Service arose, I decided to. To, to stay initially temporarily in Ukraine. And then one thing led to another. Um, and as I say, I never, I, never, I never ended up leaving. I became drawn into Ukraine and, and uh, I've made it my home ever since. And Peter, can I ask you, what was the project about? It was the British Council. It was the, uh, the which is essentially the cultural, the cultural wing of, of the British Foreign Office. Um, so I was the representative for West Ukraine. I was the British... I was a British guy on the ground, so essentially my, my title was information manager, uh, which was which was as ambiguous as it sounds, really. I was essentially responsible for responding to uh, interest from the from the region regarding Britain and for promoting British projects in West Ukraine. And how did you become editor for the Atlantic Council's Ukraine Alert? Well, I've been involved in British, uh, sorry, in English language uh, media about Ukraine for the vast majority of my time in Ukraine. So since since 1999, after leaving the, the, the British Foreign Service, I've been working in the in the English language Ukrainian world, uh, media world. So I've I've run various magazines over the years. I've launched a number of TV channels and managed them as well. Um, and I've written extensively on Ukrainian issues. So my, my relationship with the Atlantic Council was initially as an author. I was writing articles for them. Um, the Atlantic Council is one of the main think tanks in Washington, D.C. It has a focus on the one of one of its focuses is um, the transatlantic relationship and the former former Soviet Union. And um, so. After 2014, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine began, the Atlantic Council placed a specific em emphasis on its Ukraine coverage. Uh, and I contributed to that for a number of years and um, eventually moving from contributor to fellow of the Atlantic Council and, and, and then eventually as the editor for their Ukraine coverage. Peter, as Ukraine enters its third year of the Russian invasion, what is your candid assessment of the current situation? 
Well, I think certainly there's there's a significant degree of, um, uh, if not pessimism, certainly a lack of optimism at the moment, uh, especially if we compare it to the mood uh, a year ago. And I think that's entirely understandable. At the moment, it's it's not clear how the war can be won, how it can even be ended on terms other than Russia's. Um, and I think that that mood is understandable if we look at what's happened over the past year. As, you know, primarily, if we look at the the, you know, the lack of progress achieved in Ukraine's counteroffensive. So if we look at it um, objectively now, it is unclear to see how Ukraine can make a decisive breakthrough, how Ukraine can force Russia uh, to accept that its invasion has been a failure, essentially. You know, how, how Ukraine can avoid a compromise of sorts that would be, uh, you know, deeply, deeply painful and perhaps very foolish and reckless for, for Ukraine to accept. Uh, but I wouldn't go I wouldn't go too far with the negativity in the assessment. I think it's also important to, to recognise that over the past year, uh, Ukraine has not been able to advance, but neither has Russia. Uh, Russia has mobilised approximately 350,000 soldiers in addition to its original invasion force, um, has essentially deployed its entire army to Ukraine um, and has achieved very little except stopping Ukraine advance. Uh, they, they, the Russians have not been able to make any significant advances of their own. Uh, they've suffered very, very heavy losses. Uh, there was a mutiny last summer, which temporarily, very briefly, looked like it might topple the Putin regime entirely. Uh, so I think Russia's situation is better than a year ago, but certainly not very rosy. So uh, there's still a lot that can happen in this war. It's still a long way to go. And I wouldn't be, I'd be cautious of being too pessimistic. Uh, but I, but certainly we have to recognise that Ukraine's position at the moment is, is, is challenging. And there are no simple solutions it's going to be you know if ukraine is to achieve its goals it will have it will take um a long a long uh concerted effort and a lot of support from the international community and do you think there's any possibility that the war will end in a stalemate or a frozen conflict well i think realistically that's probably the most likely outcome at this point again if we to put aside um ukraine's you know the 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 morality of it, let's say, or the ethics of it, of course, we're, we're all hopeful that Ukraine uh, can achieve a decisive a decisive result. I think if you're looking at it from a distance, you know, or as a, you know, a gambling man, as it were, the most likely scenario would be some form of a, a frozen conflict. That would be disastrous, in my opinion, for first and foremost for Ukraine and for the Ukrainian people, but also for European security, global security. Uh, it would set the stage for further war. And we've seen that very clearly from 2014 onwards. We've seen that in other areas where Russia is active. And just simply by, if we just go by what the Kremlin itself and what Putin himself says, uh, it seems fairly, fairly um, obvious that um, anything short of a Russian defeat would be a stepping stone to more war. But at this stage, if we take all the different factors into play, the, the, the situation on the front lines of the, of the war, the situation in both Russia and Ukraine, um, and the situation around international support for Ukraine, unfortunately, there's some form of a stalemate or compromise scenario, a frozen conflict scenario, looks like the most likely of the many, you know, the variety of options that are still on the table. And should Ukraine try to negotiate with Russia regarding the occupied territories? 
Now, I would be very cautious of doing so. I think Ukraine has been clear that they won't do that. I, I would be extremely cautious of any any form of negotiation with Russia. Um, Russia has demonstrated on many occasions that it it, it it is a bad faith partner in negotiations, that it cannot be trusted. So there is a very fundamental question of whether it's, it's of any value at all to negotiate with Russia. Uh, all that can really be achieved is, by, is to validate Russia's positions. I think it's important for Ukraine to maintain a a, a stance um, that it will never um, accept the occupation uh, of its territories. It will never cede territory to Russia. Uh, and there is a lot of precedence for this internationally. I mean, the, the international community never acknowledged the occupation of the Baltic states throughout the Cold War uh, by the Soviet Union. The international community um, has, you know, has similar stances on other other conflict areas around the world such as northern cyprus uh, there's no there's no definitive peace agreement uh, between north and south korea uh, also an interesting precedent potentially so i think that you know we we, we can you know, things can move forward on the diplomatic front without any direct negotiations and certainly i don't think that any ukrainian leader can ever uh, even entertain the idea of officially recognizing russia's uh, annexation of Ukrainian land. Peter, what do you think the current prospects are for Ukraine to receive a new round of aid from the EU in the US in the near future? And are there any realistic alternatives for Ukraine to secure funds in other ways? Well, I think the uh, I think the the American situation is the most problematic. It, it it has it seems to become more and more problematic uh, as as the weeks pass. Uh, initially, it was seen as a, a stalling tactic when we if we go back to last September when this whole debate began about the proposed uh, new 60, 60, 60 billion or, or so um, package for Ukraine. Um, the initial delays were treated as a, as a stumbling a stumbling um, block an obstacle here in here in Kiev. Uh, but it seems to have become more and more severe. Uh, now we are now at a situation where, frankly, it would it would it, it's it, there's a strong appearance um, that Donald Trump has set it has set his mind on blocking Ukraine aid at all costs. That it is an absolute political pri priority for Donald Trump to make sure Ukraine receives no U.S. aid, and he has made that clear to all of the uh, Republican Party that if they if they cross him and if they risk supporting Ukraine, he will punish them. And he has a very strong record of doing so. And as we see in recent weeks, I think it's very clear that he has enormous authority over his party. Nobody in, within his party has the, has the courage to challenge him. So if that given that situation, it really looks challenging to get that through um, Congress, to get the Ukraine package through. So the U.S. situation is, in my opinion, the most challenging at this at this point. Um, across, you know, across the Atlantic in the, the EU, I think there's a much more likely that we're going to see progress. Um, even this week, um, we're speaking today at the end of January and in early February, the EU, EU leaders will come together. Um, I would I would frankly be surprised if they don't find a way to solve that issue, if they don't find a way to free up um, the plans there, tens of billions. And individual countries are also looking to increase their uh, their support for Ukraine. Um, the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has been very specific in recent recent weeks, saying all EU countries must give more. Uh, we're hearing a lot of news from Germany of the German um, the German 
armaments industry finally starting to kick into gear with new plants, with new manufacturing facilities and capabilities coming online within the next few months. So there are encouraging signs that Europe's stepping up. The big question is, can Europe replace America? Um, unfortunately, the answer is probably not entirely. Uh, they can replace a certain amount. They can do, to a certain degree, they can fill the gap by, that left by America's um, political impasse, uh, but they cannot entirely. So Ukraine is looking essentially at at least this year of uh, a restricted aid, um, but they're not going to be left empty-handed. Aid will continue. Um, I would say, you know, ballpark, probably somewhere around 60, 70% of what they were receiving. But, of course, Ukraine was hoping to receive more, not less. So it's it's very um, sobering news, let's say. I think it's alarming and it's, it indicates that there, you know, this is a year for Ukraine to be looking to be, you know, to be on the defensive, to look just to get through this. Peter, why do you think both Hungary and Slovakia are working against Ukraine in the EU now? And could there potentially be other EU countries, for example, Italy, that could become problematic for Ukraine? Yes, certainly. There's always potential for more prob problems within the EU, and Italy would be one candidate. But um, at this stage, that doesn't look like to be doesn't look like it's going to be the case. Um, the Italian Italian public opinion is quite strongly in favour of support for Ukraine. And the Italian government at the moment are also very strongly in support of Ukraine. Uh, surprisingly so, in fact, when, when, when Melania, when, when the current prime minister was was appointed, um, there were concerns that she would be a another um, another sort of Putin proxy. But on the contrary, she's been extremely uh, outspoken in her support for Ukraine and extremely principled in her support for Ukraine. Um, so we shall see which way you know which way things move in Italy because that's a country also that's prone to very strong swings in political climate. Hungary and Slovakia are um, essentially allies of Russia at the moment uh, in, within the EU. Hungary much more so than uh, Slovakia. I think the situation in Slovakia could also be subject to change. And they have indicated that they are not um, entirely opposed to Ukraine in all areas. The, the Slovakian position essentially is support for Ukrainian integration within the EU, opposition to Ukrainian integration in NATO, um, which is a kind of Hungary light, as it were. Um, Hungary is the main obstacle. And they are, to all extents and purposes, a, a, a proxy for Putin within the EU. The Hungarian government is at odds with virtually all the other European governments. Um, Viktor Orban is, is, is a dictator in all but name. Uh, and he has made his bed politically as an ally of the Russians. He's made it very clear that he supports Russia. Uh, he opposes all anti-Russian measures within the EU, and he's done so for many years. You know, so he he is dependent now. Of course, there may be, you know, he may have a lot of reasons for doing that. He may have very personal reasons for doing that in terms of personal benefits that he receives or that his family or his clan receives. Um, it's also very politically, very politically beneficial for him. Uh, but you know, whatever it may be, of course, we can speculate. It's clear that he represents Russia within the EU. He is Russia's main ally, and I think the EU now recognizes this and is basically fed up with this and says okay we're going to have to change our requirement for absolute unanimity on all issues 
because we're not going to be held hostage by uh, Putin's Putin's puppet, essentially. And they're looking now to sideline the Hungarians. So I think this is going to be one of the key issues in the coming the coming half year or so will be the EU's attempt to to bypass Hungary and to basically defang to to disarm Hungary and say, okay, you can no longer hold us hostage. We will not allow you to play this game of, of representing Putin within in, in Brussels. Unfortunately, we're just about out of time, but I do have one final question. Do you think Ukraine has had any recent military successes in the war? And if you do, can you describe them? Oh, absolutely, yes. I mean, it, it's not accurate to talk about a stalemate, as we often hear, and the stalemate implies that like nothing is happening. The fronts are quiet, and and, and there's a this total um, deadlock. In fact, the war is extremely dynamic, and you know, tragically, you know, the the losses on both sides are very high on a daily basis. Um, there's a lot of military, there's a huge amount of military activity taking place, you know, as we speak, um, and there are successes for Ukraine. I think if, you, if we look at the last year, Ukraine's main success has unquestionably been in the Black Sea. And Ukraine has no fleet of its own. Uh, it has no warships. It essentially has no navy. But over the past year or so, Ukraine has managed using a combination of drones, which are domestically produced, uh, and cruise missiles, which have been supplied by the British and the French, to attack Russia's Black Sea fleet and to essentially force them to retreat from Crimea, uh, which has been traditionally the, the occupied Crimea, which has been the base for the Russian Black Sea fleet for hundreds of years, uh, to the east of the Black Sea, to the Russian seaboard. And uh, Russia has actually been forced to begin work even on a new port uh, in occupied Georgia in the east of the, of the Black Sea. So um, Ukraine has had an incredible success there by forcing this massive and historic retreat of the Russian Black Sea fleet. Uh, that reduces Russia's ability to bomb Ukraine, to, to, to launch missile attacks from the Black Sea. It also has allowed Ukraine to break the blockade of uh, Ukraine's uh, Black Sea ports and, and reopen uh, merchant shipping lanes there and, and have an economic lifeline to the in international markets, which is hugely important uh, for the country's economy, which, again, you know, is, is, is a lifeline for the war itself, for the war effort. Um so it's, it's a very significant success, uh, and it's a good example, I think, first and foremost, of what can be achieved when Ukraine does receive sufficient amounts of weapons from the West, in this case, cruise missiles, uh, and is allowed to use them without any of these bizarre restrictions that the West has been imposing, uh, this fear of escalation, where they said, oh, you, you can have these, these bombs, these, these missiles, but you mustn't use them against Russian, against Russian targets, you mustn't use them in Russia. Um, now, obviously, Crimea is Ukraine, but still it was seen by many at the beginning of the war as a red line for the Russians. But the British and French said, no, it's it's Ukraine. You can, you know, please, please feel free to go ahead in Crimea. And the results are clear uh, when they when these two ingredients, Western weapons and Ukrainian ingenuity, uh, courage, um, boldness are combined. Uh, the Russians are defeated. And again, you know, Russia made many, many threats about if you dare to attack Crimea, you know, we will take uh, extreme action. Uh, Putin's very veiled, uh, thinly veiled uh, nuclear threats. And yet when it happened, uh, there was no escalation from the Russian side. Instead, Putin very quietly ordered his fleet to retreat. Uh, and this has often been the case with Russia making very bold threats. And then when they find out that they are facing an unfavorable 
military reality, they retreat, they withdraw quietly. So there's a lot of lessons in that that I hope will be applied by Ukraine and its allies to, to the broader war. But certainly there are victories to talk about, there are successes to talk about. And first and foremost, uh, over the past year, it's all about Ukraine winning the Battle of the Black Sea. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today on Kudenitsia. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I have been speaking with Peter Dickinson, editor of the Atlantic Council's Ukraine Alert, and also chief editor of Business Ukraine magazine. This podcast has been produced for The Ukrainian Weekly, a newspaper published in English for the global Ukrainian community since 1933. And I'm Mike Burek, your host and producer of Kredenitsia. Until next time, that's all for now.